you speak? Um, some people are lucky enough to marry what they want with what puts food on the table, but many aren't. Um, do you think that economy is always comparable, or just pragmatic sort of conflict between the life you'd like to live and the life that pays the rent? Is that manageable too somehow? I don't know if I'm asking this. All of us need to have a livelihood. All of us. I have a livelihood. So my livelihood is very clearly prescribed, and in my livelihood, I'm not allowed to charge for things. I'm not allowed to ask for things unless people ask me. I have a livelihood and ways of obtaining it. Sometimes I cry because it's hard, and I have doubt about whether it makes sense to live this way. Okay? My dilemmas are the same as yours. The way I have resolved them is by going inward and seeing what is true for me, what makes the most sense, how do I want to live, where is the resistance, where is the grasping, what's getting activated from my early childhood which this is a perfect opportunity for exploring. How can I bring more stability in my life so I don't feel like I'm hanging by a piece of dental floss over a 10,000 foot crevasse? It's the same question, a different context. Yes, please. Um, I'm going to sound probably ignorant, but what does monastic mean, and what does it mean to you? Because that's what we were told that you are. This is what I understood: is you're a monastic nun, and I was raised in Catholicism, so Catholicism has nuns, and I don't quite understand if there's a difference or what that means. So, so um, as a and are you a monastic nun? Yeah. Okay. Okay. I am. I, I'm a nun, and I'm a monastic. And you know, the difference between the Catholic nuns and the Buddhist nuns um, are, are there's a lot in many ways, and there's a lot of similarities in other ways. So most people who are living a life of renunciation and a life of faith and a life of contemplation have a lot more in common than they've got different. Okay. But as a Buddhist nun, there's a lot of differences from the Catholic order, which is the Catholic order has a lot of wealth, and they support their communities. As a monastic, I'm not connected to any mother house that's supporting me. Okay, So I'm an alms mendicant. I live entirely on free will donations. And I don't have any larger structure that's supporting me in my life. I'm entirely dependent on community to support me, okay? And so that's one difference between Catholics and Buddhists in the way that I live. There are other Buddhist traditions that do things a little bit differently, but the way I live, it's like that, okay? The other thing is, is, is that I'm a contemplative. And so in the Catholic order, there are contemplatives, but they're a minority. 
mostly the Catholic nuns are involved in service. So they're running hospitals and running schools and, you know, involved in phenomenal and really important social programs, okay? And contemplation is part of what they do, but it's not a majority of what they do. I come from an order of contemplatives. So we live as renunciates, and our primary focus is contemplation, okay, rather than service, in the sense that we're not running schools or hospitals or things like that. But I teach, and so I am engaged with conversations with people around how to practice, and that is my service, is through teaching and mentoring and speaking with people. Yeah. That sounds like a lot. It is a lot. It is a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. Does that answer your question? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anybody else? Yes, please. Yeah. Well, uh, much of what you spoke about resonates with me, and um, but a few things that were touched upon were um, somewhat abstract. Um, and I would be interested in knowing, for, it, for example, when you talked about it being somehow intolerable for us to have self-acceptance or forget how you put it exactly, something about um, beauty, that was it, yeah. to, to, to be connected with our beauty, our inner beauty of, it's sort of complexity of being human and just being connected to the beauty of that. Um, I, I would imagine that that came to you from some specific experience. That and so, is there something that you can share that about what you've experienced that that made you um, that brought that um, truth? I think, you know, on one hand we're complex creatures because we hunger for beauty and to feel ourselves as beautiful. But what, but, but what I think happens for many people is, is that they feel like just a quarter of a millimeter underneath the surface is this like vast cesspit, okay, that is endless in all directions. And so there's, there's a, a real fear for many people of of inquiry because there's a fear that if you actually go in, all that you're going to find is something that's endlessly foul, right? So in order to touch our real radiance means that we have to actually get beneath this cesspit. Mm -hmm. And most people are frightened to touch the cesspit to get through it. So the beauty is that, that people are often interested in is, that, is to decorate the cesspit. Okay? <laughs> to put perfume around it, you know, to put a plastic flower around the edge of the cesspit that a cesspit looks more beautiful. But that's not the radiance that I'm talking about. The radiance that I'm talking about is when we understand how this cesspit has come into being and the fact that that is not our essential nature and that when we cut through that, see through that, penetrate through that, there's something that is vast and luminous and all-pervasive that is our nature, okay? So the terror that we have is going through that layer to come into our actual reality. 
Yes, that's a big journey for many of us for our life, is to really wrestle with this feeling, this deep sense of profound sense of unworthiness. That somehow the reason why we don't have the safety or the love or the pleasure or the whatever that we are hungering for is because somehow fundamentally we're unworthy of it. So it turns it around from it just being like the pain of being having a body that gets old to the fact that the reason why we're fundamentally unsatisfied or incomplete is because we can't possibly be worthy of the love or the support or the friendship or the caring that would make it otherwise. And to touch that and to go through that and to come through the other side of that and see the conditioned co-arising of that and not get stuck in that is a big journey. Mm -hmm. Yes, please, in the back. This may not come out as clearly as, as it is in my heart, but um, so much of what you said was so resonant to me because um, I do believe that somewhere in the journey of having the expectation that things would be a certain way is what causes the suffering. The attachment is the suffering. Whether it's with family, whether it's with relationship or work in the workplace, when anger comes up for me or sadness comes up for me, I know that I'm attaching something to the result of what it should be. So I, it feels like fear. Right? Now when you spoke, I also uh, was filled emotionally when you started talking about how powerful somehow innately I know that I am. The Marianne Williamson quote, right? Yes. And yeah. that also feels like fear. <laughs> yes. Right? Yeah. So I'm wondering, because I'm new to meditation and looking forward to meditation, yes. how meditation might support me around both of those fears. Brilliant question. Brilliant question. <laughs> uh, <I> <laughs> oh, brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant question. Fabulous question. Meditation helps us see what's true. Okay? Sometimes what we see what's true is unpleasant because we don't want to see that. But when we see something that's true that's unpleasant, it gives us leverage to find other things that are true and beautiful. Okay? So one of the things that meditation does is that it helps us begin to see the wrong way that we have been seeing things. All right? And one of the wrong ways that we've been seeing things is, is that we see ourselves as being limited and separate. And that's a kind of habit that's partially ingrained by our nervous system, the way our perceptual, our sense doors operate. You know, our eyes and our ears are kind of organized around seeing me here and you there. Okay? Well, the eyes aren't. The eyes are pretty neutral. But what our brain does with the eye, in, with the information that comes through, is to, tr to interpret it as that. I'm here and you're there. Separation. Yeah, right? That separation causes inevitable fear. Because you're out there, you know, you're separate from me. And you might, you might be really kind and caring, but that might be really scary. Because if you're really kind and caring, then you might just suddenly disappear. Mm -hmm. All right? 
Or you might not be kind and caring. You might be mean and nasty. And that might be scary because I'm afraid that you're going to come into my space and do something to me that's going to affect me so that I'm going to have to deal with that mean and scary. So that fundamental experience of being separate is a huge source of our fear. Huge. Huge, 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 huge. And it's also a huge source of our longing. Because if I'm separate, then I'm hungry to have interactions with you that are authentic and meaningful and conducive and congruent and supportive and reliable. And all of that is subject to all kinds of hugely variable conditions, all of which I'm totally out of control around, or mostly. Yeah. So the fundamental premise that I'm separate from you sets up fear and hunger. And when we begin to meditate and start seeing that for the reality of what it is, that that actually is a construct, a conditioned construct, rather than an actuality, then all kinds of things start to shift. And that shifting allows me to be more relaxed with what arises for myself, more relaxed with what arises for you, and more relaxed with what arises between us in terms of how things come and go. As I'm more relaxed with the world, I'm also more relaxed with my own internal experience. And as I'm more relaxed with my own internal experience, the terror of who I really am ceases to be a terror. I look forward to that. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. You mentioned the, uh, the three primary road travel the intimacies, sexual, sensual, the fame and fortune, or checking out. So I have two questions on that. Number one, couldn't we be pursuing all three at the same time? And, and number two, isn't there a degree of checking out involved in the, the total embracing of, of the Buddhist path, insofar as it's so much based on acceptance? and and being with whatever is the truth at the time? So the first question of whether all three can, can co-arise simultaneously, I'm quite sure in our modern world we are capable of that. <laughs> in terms of the second one, the path of awakening is not a path of checking out. It's absolutely the opposite. Though, what looks like it might be checking out to some, because we're not reacting. We're not getting flipped out, hysterical, we're not engaging in battle or warfare, we're not staking our claim, we're not pushing people in their face. It looks like we don't care, but it's totally the opposite. We care hugely, we're just not reacting visibly. Then what did you mean by the checking out? Checking out is not wanting to know what's going on. Oh. Yeah. Not wanting to feel, not wanting to see, not wanting to be present, yeah. not wanting to, to know what's going on. And what we're doing is the opposite of that. Totally the opposite of that. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Thanks. That's right. Yeah. Just a corollary to that. In a world where 
people interpret that sort of equanimity as checking out? I mean, you're surrounded by people that are in threat mode, yes. right? And all of a sudden, yeah. not all of a sudden, all of a lifetime, you're, you're developing these skillful ways of not being reactive, and yet you live in a world where they, the people around you will interpret that in many different ways. How do you navigate that skillfully so people don't respond to you from a perspective of, you just don't care? You're not responsible for what other people do <laughs> with the things that they see and hear. You're responsible for your actions and your speech. Okay. Now, how to advocate for yourself in a situation where somebody is misinterpreting you is a different question. That's a different question. You cannot determine what somebody else is going to do with what happens with what you say, you know. And you can see that, you know. You can say red and somebody hears blue. You can say two and somebody hears 64. You're not responsible for that. But you are responsible for what you do in response to that. <coughs> and you are responsible for advocating for your needs when somebody is being rude or aggressive or abusive or shaming or disrespectful because they've totally misunderstood what you were trying to say or where you're coming from. But, you know, I've had, you know, all kinds of situations where people... I was living at a monastery in England, and there was somebody who was a born-again fundamentalist, somebody or another, convinced that his duty in life was to convert me. So he came up to me to convert me to being a Christian. So he comes up, you know, with the question, do you believe in God? So I look at him, and I said, you know, it all depends on what you mean by God. What do you mean by God? He said, no, no, what do, you, do you believe in God? I said, well, if you believe God to be all-pervasive awareness and consciousness, then I'm there right with you. <laughs> you know, so he was determined to stick me in a box, and I was hell-bent and determined not to get stuck in a box. <laughs> Yes. I have another kind of beginner's mind question. Um, when you talk about meditation, you, well, what I heard was that you can meditate, this was back to this question, Beth, thank you, that um, you're meditating on something. And so far, what I've been taught through the practice with Inside LA is that when I'm meditating, I'm trying to get everything out. In other words, the trains are gone, thank you, not now, to be just present. I want to say empty. So my question is the instrument of meditation, and it sounds like there's meditation, which is what I have been learning and doing. And then there's contemplation, which is, it's that, that, that there seems to be a separation, a distinction. Okay, there's concentration and there's insight. And in order to be able to focus, you need to have a certain amount of collectiveness. So we know when our, you know, our thoughts are running a riot, you know, and it's like we've got a bunch of crazy monkeys in our head, you know, mm -hmm. that we don't have much capacity to see what's going on, you know. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be a certain amount of collectiveness in order to be able to discern what's going on. So 
the first thing that's needed is to settle in, to drop in, to collect, to allow the kind of crazy monkeys to, to, to go have a nap, you know. We don't need to punish them when we don't need to execute them or cut off their tails. We just need to encourage them to go have a nap, right? Mm-hmm. So that first part of meditation where we're concentrating, there's, an, there's a deliberate intention to work with all of the stuff that's arising in a way where we're not following it, right? right? Mm-hmm. But that's not the goal. That's a stepping stone. And that stepping stone is to allow attention to connect so that we can then use it as a, as a, focal, a focus to see what's really happening and to see our relationship with what's really happening. And you're doing that in meditation? Absolutely. So if you were to go on a retreat where uh-huh. it was longer than, you know, a, 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 a two-hour something where we had a 30-minute meditation, they would start you with concentration, which is what you've been learning in Insight. Mm-hmm. And then they would open up the field of attention to include the feelings that you have, the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. They would include the thoughts that you have so that you're actually bringing the meditation to the thoughts themselves. They would include how you're relating to the thoughts and whether you're feeling wanting them or not wanting them, whether you're having aversion towards them or lust for them. Okay, All of these different things are meditation. But usually when you start, and what happens in these groups is, is that oftentimes people are constantly dealing with new people, and so they're starting with first-level instructions, which is suitable for new people. But that's not the end of meditation. That's the beginning step, to be able to give you the resources to then apply the clarity into all this other stuff that's going on. So a meditative contemplation, which you can bring anywhere, is what's happening right now, and how am I relating to it? You can do that anywhere. You can do that in school, you can do that in the car, you can do that in the shower, you can do that washing dishes, you can do that in the toilet. What's happening now, and how am I relating to it? So you're not pushing anything away. You're opening up what's happening now, and how am I relating to it? Are we supposed to finish at 9? We're after 9. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.